Good afternoon, Chuck Morse here, Left Right Radio, every afternoon at, at 12 noon. And uh, my guest uh, is Keith Whittington. He is the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics at Princeton University. He's the author of Political Foundations of Judicial Supremacy, the Presidency, the Supreme Court, and Constitutional Leadership in U.S. History, among other really amazing texts. Uh, Keith, thanks for joining me this afternoon. Thanks for having me. Keith, I want to, first of all, get into a, a very critical but rather dreary subject that you have probably some firsthand knowledge on, and that is the phenomena of, I don't want to use the word campus censorship, but there has been an atmosphere that has prevailed on America's main liberal campuses that, let's just say, it severely discourages um, alternative conservative, libertarian, and other type speech. And, um, and and it does so, not necessarily in the formal sense, but through various intimidation tactics. Can you talk a little bit on that and on your own observations? Yeah, I think that's certainly true. I think it's a problem that's more severe on some campuses than on other campuses. Um, so I don't think it's a universal problem, but it's a real problem. Um, and it can take multiple forms. So I think... Um, uh, one set of concerns is sort of these very high-profile, visible um, displays of intolerance toward outside speakers, um, people being shouted down, such as the example of Charles Murray at Middlebury. Um, and, and that doesn't happen all that often. Um, they get a lot of attention when it does happen. Um, it's discouraging, but it is certainly sort of an effort, I think, by campus activists to really um, be very visible in saying, here's the limits as to what we're willing to tolerate on this campus. Um, and they happen to express it in the context of an outside speaker. I think the other thing that's much more common and but but also um, much less visible um, and, and harder to deal with ultimately um, is self-censorship um, by students um, in the classrooms and elsewhere um, mm. where students are just um, very hesitant um, uh, to um, express their own views given uh, concerns about how other students will receive that. Um, they have to live with those students um, on a college campus, and as a consequence, they're often, um, I think, less worried about what their professor is going to think and more worried about what their fellow students are going to think. Um, and as a consequence, I think a lot of students are very cautious um, about what they're willing to say um, in, in the classroom, and I suspect it extends uh, well beyond the classroom and other contexts uh, as well on, on campus. Well, the, the, there does seem to be the obvious social pressure to conform to liberal points of view. Um, I think that it even ratchets up a little bit more in that several campuses have put in it, these, uh, I guess you might, they call them by different names. I mean, in, at Tufts University, where I was broadcasting until they put me, gave me a new slot three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and, and so I eventually left. Um, they called it anti-bias police, right. anti-bias office, which somebody reported me to. Uh, because I made a very mild statement about something that, that offended someone. And I'm very aware of, you know, in loco parentis and being very careful that I am talking on, on a private college campus. So it was nothing particularly extreme, but I expressed conservative views on different issues. And I think that um, with the existence of these sorts of offices, I know that other colleges have them as well. It really is sending a, a rather chilling message to students because they can be reported to this office and they can lose their 
I suppose they're going to be kicked out of school. They're going to lose their reputation. I mean, when you have, you know, your, your parents are spending 60 grand a year to send you to these institutions. Nobody needs that. So there's a tendency, maybe it's subconscious even, to just sort of keep your head low and not express anything that might inadvertently get someone else's nose bent out of shape. Yeah, I think in a number of cases are um, installing these kinds of systems and putting them in place. Um, and at least that can be controlled by um, the administration. So um, they ought to be um, thoughtful about um, how they design these things, whether they adopt them at all. Um, I think some of them are better than others. So there are some that um, can come with disciplinary consequences. So those systems are really designed to be able to sanction students um, and, stu and that's often students in particular. Um, uh, and in the extreme cases, um, expel students from, from campus, um, but often less extreme sanctions. And some of them are really designed um, and, they're, and they're sort of pitched as if they're educational. Um, mm -hmm. so, so they don't necessarily get tied to um, a disciplinary structure. Um, they, don't, they aren't necessarily empowered with the ability to actually punish students, uh, but instead it does uh, lead to students getting called down to an office and talked to. Um, about uh, the inappropriate things they said. Um, and of course, that's very chilling as well. I think some students, uh, once they realize that's as far as it can go, um, slough it off. But, but other students, I think, are, then become very cautious about what they're willing to say um, because you know, they don't want to get called down to the principal's office. Right, of course. And this is exactly, of course, the opposite of what we conventionally think college experience is supposed to be all about, especially if you're studying political science or law where well, you need to have a vigorous debate on all sides of an issue, and you need to feel free enough to have the debate and not worry about someone, uh, you know, starting to, you know, crawl into a fetal position and, and cry and, and, and accuse you of things. I mean, nobody wants to be accused of, of these horrors, like, you know, a claim that you might be racist because, you know, there's some micro, you know, managing you know, I guess they call it microaggression, where they put right. you under a microscope and try to find a um, a racist gene. I mean, it's not even a matter of anything you said. It's it's more how you might look at somebody or you can't know. I mean, it seems to me the, the most tyrannical program I've seen come down the pike. And I know it was patented in the 1990s by Harvard professor Charles Pierce, who's first started the theory of microaggression. But now it's reached the point where yeah, I mean, it's the ultimate form of of control, you know, that, that you have to worry about not just even what you think, but what somebody might think you're thinking. I mean, I can't imagine anything more totalitarian. How can you stand? How can the students stand up to this? Well, it's difficult. And, and I, I think you're right to say it's the sort of worst possible situation is is when you have these systems that are designed to report people and what they do in class. Um, so it's sort of one thing if you imagine students getting in arguments and fights on, in a dorm, for example, um, and being able to uh, bring in residential assistants or somebody else in order to help um, arbitrate that. Um, but it's another thing when students are uh, reporting on what each other said in a classroom uh, where a professor is there supervising that conversation and suddenly you have administrators involved um, second guessing um, how you were conducting a class effectively and, um, and what kinds of arguments students can make in class. And so I think the, the, the worst kinds of abuses um, on uh, these fronts, whether it's the older hate speech codes or these more in, uh, recent um, incident bias teams and the like, um, 
is is the effort to say certain kinds of academic arguments that you might be exploring in the classroom um, or in student papers, uh, for example, um, are are unacceptable um, and and run afoul of of some administrator somewhere somewhere that's that's going to uh, challenge them. Um, I think universities have to be very aggressive. Faculty need to be very aggressive in pushing back against that um, and, and resisting that. Um, the microaggression thing, I think, is a um, uh, real concern. It's it often is tied into these um, bias incident teams as a way of um, that that's that's precisely um, not what people were intending to say necessarily, but um, how somebody um, received what might have be in other circumstances seem like an innocuous comment. Um, but somebody's offended by it, um, and and they reported up the chain um, to to administrators. And um, again, I think universities have to be extraordinarily cautious before they um, discipline students in particular. Um, and I think they need to be very careful about how they train administrators that have uh, responsibilities to um, help supervise students, um, so that they um, are not overly aggressive in trying to enforce um, uh, some of these ideas. But yet they're not doing that. I mean, it seems like these ideas and these programs, as it were, have really achieved a high ground on on many and increasing numbers of campuses. And um, it's also used as a bludgeon, I think, by liberal left groups to really push around groups that don't conform to their point of view. Um, I'd specifically mention the phenomena of... Um, the anti-Israel movement, uh -huh. uh, the uh, you know the uh, not just the Palestinian movement that's okay, but the this Jewish Voice for Peace, which demands that Hillel, which is a pro-Israel Jewish group, you know let them come in and uh, that they can't have pro-Jewish pro-Israel speakers. Right. Um, it's a uh, you know it's really a terrible phenomenon. I know that here in Boston, where I am, um, I've spoken to the administrator of the Hillel at BU, and they. They basically said they didn't get anywhere here. We just hit them off with a stick. But in some of the smaller campuses, they're making major inroads. And, um, you know, it's, um, yeah, I only use that as one example of many that could be cited. These, these radical left groups tend to do what's called intersectionality, where they sort of flock together with other radical left groups. And, they, and if one group is criticized, then they all kind of use their their group force, I hate to use the word collective, but you know, they use that force to silence the the opposition. And um, I'm fearful that not only is this happening on college campuses, but it's happening in corporations, it's happening in businesses, and it's happening in everyday life. Yeah, I think it's expanding off of college campuses, um, as with many other things, ideas that start off on college campuses, um, sets of practices and institutions that start on college campuses can expand into the wider world. Um, and one of the challenges on campuses, and I think it's a similar challenge that corporations and other organizations face as well, is um, these things often fly under the radar. Um, they're um, separated out from uh, the main parts of the organization. So in a university context, um, for example, um, the administrators who are in charge of developing these programs and, and implementing them um, often um, are completely unknown to the faculty. Um, faculty aren't paying any attention to them. Um, uh, senior campus leadership often isn't paying attention to them. So they have their sort of autonomous lines of authority um, and operate pretty independently in lots of ways mm -hmm. and, and then only come to the attention 
um, of others on campus when a particular scandal breaks. Um, so I think in particular, senior university leadership needs to be um, particularly self-conscious about paying attention to these kinds of um, administrative lines and programs um, and how they're um, behaving, because um, otherwise they, they can, um, uh, uh, I hate to use the word fester, but fester uh, under, under the surface um, uh, and then only become visible when there's a real problem. Um, mm -hmm. And I think likewise, corporations and others are sort of in a similar bind that um, things can be developing in HR departments and elsewhere um, where you're not paying attention to them. They sort of become routinized, institutionalized. Um, and then next thing you know, um, uh, uh, there's a particularly visible scandal um, that occurs and suddenly everybody becomes aware of something that's been going all along in the background the whole time. And I think I should also caution even, you know, liberals who might be watching this that if you start to go down this fascistic path, these sorts of organizations and these sorts of modalities can be used against you. You know, if you have somebody has a vendetta against you, they don't like you or they're, they they want to push you aside and elbow in, you know, themselves into a position, you know, all of a sudden you could become a target of this. It's like once you have this particular kind of mindset which is very typical, by the way, of communist countries. And take a look at communist China. They have, you know, like a block leader who keeps an eye on the, the neighborhood and makes sure that people don't go out, you know, go off the, uh, the the path in terms of political correctness. I interviewed somebody who was a survivor of Nazi Germany. They did this as well. You know, if you said something that was even slightly off the mark in terms of criticizing the Nazi regime. You could get a visit by a police, and that, in that case, it was the Gestapo. You know, you had the, these organizations were, were formalized. They were nationalized. They were part of the apparatus of the government itself. I'm not suggesting we've reached that point. But you have this mindset, this acceptance of this kind of authoritarianism that can open the door to that and then in a small way lead to it with many small examples that we, we might begin to get comfortable with. So I guess that, Keith, my question to you, as someone who has written extensively about civil liberties and the Constitution and, and uh, you know, our, our way of life, is what can we do as conservatives, libertarians, open-minded, well-meaning liberals to, uh, to, to counter this? Well, I think you're right to point out that it's, it's not simply a left-right issue. Um, and so conservatives have become very vocal about um, free speech issues lately. Um, but I'm in some ways um, optimistic because I think a lot of liberals on college campuses and off college campuses um, are seeing some of the problems. And, and often uh, liberals are increasingly becoming the target um, of that's a lot right. of these um, campaigns. Um, and so I think one thing that's important is to build a broader coalition on campuses and off campuses um, in support of free speech and support of the core mission of the university um, of engaging in skeptical inquiry and wide-ranging debate. Um, I think there are coalitions to be built. Um, I think it's important not to simply characterize these as um, an issue that's only of concern to uh, conservatives or those who are on the right, um, because it shouldn't be, and right. ultimately it'll be more effective um, if it's not characterized that way. Um, sure. I think it's, um, it's it particularly is important, I think, for um, senior leadership on college campuses to be uh, focusing on these ideas. I think increasingly they are. Um, I think there's uh, some of these high profile incidents like the 
uh, Middlebury incident with Charles Murray or some of the Berkeley uh, incidents have opened a lot of people's eyes um, to problems on campuses. And as a consequence, I think college presidents are fairly open to um, thinking about this seriously and, and pushing back. And I think donors and alumni can be effective in helping to encourage them uh, to think about that. Um, uh, and But, but I, I hope actually this can be dealt with at sort of a campus level rather than necessarily involving uh, state legislatures, for example, um, in trying to intervene in campus politics. I think that's often going to be um, uh, uh, fairly ham-fisted and um, have a lot of bad consequences as well as potentially some good consequences. So it'd be much better if, if campus uh, presidents um, and senior leadership um, take the lead in, in pushing these issues and really insisting um, that universities uh, pursue their core mission of uh, pursuing the truth wherever it may go, and that leads to um, people being able to articulate controversial ideas on college campuses. Right, and obviously the bigger the the bigger the problem becomes, and you get the government involved, it becomes much worse. Um, you know, I would hope that in such conflicts, where someone feels offended that somebody said something, those things can be handled in the classroom, or yeah. they could be handled directly between the two parties rather than turn it into like a weapon, you know, to weaponize these things on the campus level or even outside the campus where you, uh, you could have, um, uh, you know, a, a situation where, where you have all of a sudden investigation. Um, you know, here in Boston, for example, we had, um, it was a minor incident where someone made a, a racially insensitive comment on a website several years ago, and there was a couple of other things that happened that wouldn't really could have been handled on the campus. But um, these two young women set up a, a Facebook page uh, talking about it. Um, and they didn't even mean it to become a big deal. But the Boston Globe picked up on it. Before you know it, they have three agencies, a federal, state and local, investigating this high school and right. going in. And there was headlines and it was like, oh, my God, they're racist. And this is one of the most, by the way, racially diverse high schools in the state. I mean, it's so, so these things can become weaponized and they can be used as a way to really blow something way out of proportion. And it sends a message to your average student that you better be quiet. You better be, you know, you better not say anything because nobody wants to see their name in the paper and right? nobody wants to. You know, these, uh, these organizations and this trend really could ruin a person's life. They could ruin their career. And uh, you know, once they're in place, it's very hard to to combat this and to to um, counteract it. Yeah, no, I think things clearly can uh, blow up um, and and escape campus itself and become much more uh, visible public controversies. Um, I think some of the challenge is ultimately going to have to be addressed um, be below the college level. That is, um, uh, people in primary and secondary schools. Uh, need to be trying to um, encourage students to uh, figure out ways of working out their own problems rather than simply um, trying to report to an administrator and, and expect the administrator to always intervene. Um, I think uh, students at a fairly young age uh, need to be cautioned about um, how they use social media and, and the like. Um, so, uh, you know, some of the habits um, of how students communicate, but also some of the habits of how um, students expect to be treated um, is, is really developed earlier before they get to college. Um, and then it's a tough challenge to get them out of the mindset of, well, what was appropriate when you were 12 years old? 
Um, how should you be thinking now when you're 18, 19, 20 year olds um, and you're on a college campus? And, and um, colleges have a role to play in trying to get um, those students to recognize that they are uh, older adults um, and, and uh, there are certain expectations that come along with that. Um, I think it'd be helpful as well if, if at earlier grades, um, schools sort of began that process of trying to get students to be thinking about how are they going to live their lives outside of high school, outside of middle school. That's right. And I think that it's safe to say that there is a war on campuses against uh, conservative and libertarian thought. Uh, David Horowitz from the Horowitz uh, Freedom Center has done a lot of work on this, and he's personally toured campuses and, uh, and gives a lot of testimonial on it. Um, there, there's a situation here in Boston, again, where I am, where there was, the, uh, there was funding by a, a libertarian group, a Freedom Project group, by the Koch brothers. And then there's this organization to un it called they call it the Uncoke the Campus that made a publicity uh, fanfare over it, and they ended up uh, trying to shut it down. And uh, whether they're successful remains to be seen. But you know, it's like the Koch brothers are funding li civil libertarian groups. I mean, that, what's wrong with that? I mean, they won't talk about the fact that maybe George Soros, who's a, a man of the far left, is funding. Uh, groups like this um, Jewish Voices for Peace. I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's rumors about that. I'm not stating that, but I'm just saying that w when you have a conservative group or a libertarian group, they're the ones who are put under this kind of spotlight they, yeah, they, as yeah. if there's something evil about them getting money from the Koch brothers who, you know, by the way, they're not particularly conservative. I mean, they were the main funders in New York State of the gay marriage initiative. So they, 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 they tend to be, you know, libertarian oriented. Um, and, and this idea of purging them from campuses, it's, it's very chilling, in my opinion, uh, to have that happen. Yeah, there's yeah. a bit of things, I think, with the uh, Koch Foundation and, and its funding. Um, some of it, I think, um, as you say, is, a, is simply an intolerance of ideas um, that are regarded as sort of outside the mainstream of academia. And, um, uh, and, and fighting the Koch brothers is part of that effort to really say, uh, that conservative and libertarian ideas aren't necessarily welcome um, on on campus, um, and and I think um, uh, faculty administrators ought to push back strongly against that kind of argument. Um, I think some of the um, concerns about the Cook Foundation are rooted in um, some deals that I think were pretty problematic that the Cook Foundation cut with some particular universities, and I think there though the complaint ought to be directed toward those university officials as to. Um, mm -hmm. why they uh, agree to um, bad deals that maybe impinge too much um, on academic freedom. They impinged in on questions about how faculty are selected on campuses, for example. There are lots of donors um, who press universities um, to accept money with lots of strings attached to them, and some of those strings um, are unreasonable. Um, right. And it's up to university leaders to um, point that out to potential donors about um, what kinds of strings are reasonable and appropriate to university and which ones are not. And um, I think right now, um, there are certainly people who are spending a lot of time complaining about um, the Koch Foundation uh, for trying to attach some strings to um, some donations, which I think they've largely moved away from uh, more recently, in part they've learned their lesson from that, uh, when really it would be more important to direct the fire at um, university leaders and insist that there are some strings they shouldn't be um, uh, willing to agree to, uh, regardless of where the money comes from, whether it's coming from um, libertarian sources or conservative sources, or they're coming from uh, liberal or left-wing sources. 
Yeah, they probably are usually a little, a few strings attached whenever money comes into yeah, no uh, yeah a campus, and that that's definitely a legitimate and important issue. Uh, Keith Whittington's my guest. Keith uh, from Princeton University. Um, we're, we're reaching toward the end of the segment, so so tell me a little bit. What are you working on now? Well, so of course, I just have this book out, uh, Speak Freely, um, Why Universities Must Defend Free Speech, um, uh, trying to talk about this campus free speech issue and the importance of intellectual um, diversity on college campuses. Um, I have a book that um, I'm trying to move um, toward uh, coming out um, on the history of uh, judicial review of congressional statutes from the founding mm -hmm. um, to the period. Um, and I'm working on a new project on um, the idea of constitutional crisis and sort of informal features um, of the constitutional system. So how do you maintain um, a free society, um, not only by thinking about constitutional rules, but also by thinking about uh, norms and practices and standards of behavior? Interesting. I should be in touch with you about that. I keep hearing all this rumbling about uh, we're entering into a constitutional crisis because the FBI is raiding uh, President Trump's personal lawyer's office and now they're bugging his phones. But of course, that's not the constitutional crisis. The constitutional crisis is that Trump paid some hooker 10 years ago. You know, that that's the bigger deal. So that's another subject for another day. Anyways, Keith Whittington, I want to thank you for joining me this afternoon. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks a lot. Thanks. All right, man. take care.